listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. In this series, The Gospel of Luke, Jesus for All, we walk through Luke's account of the life and ministry of Christ. Good morning, everybody. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn to Luke chapter 3. We're going to continue our time in the book of Luke. Let me pray for us, and we'll dive in and see what the Lord has for us. Father, Lord, I thank you for this time together. Lord, I thank you for your word. Most importantly, I thank you that you are for us, that you have, as our passage today is going to say, you have made the valleys low, you have valleys high, you have lowered the mountains, and Father, you have made a path for us because you are for us. Father, I pray as we We hear your word today, Lord, that your spirit will work through me and in all of our hearts. Lord, I just pray that today we can see Jesus for who he truly is and all that he has done to save us. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we continue our journey through Luke's account of all the things that have been accomplished among us, meaning what has been accomplished through God's work and and Jesus' work, we pick up the story of John the Baptist as we turn the page and we go to chapter 3. Now, the the story was left off in verse 80 of chapter 1, and we can read that, where it says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, talking about John the Baptist, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And that's exactly what we're talking about today, his public appearance to Israel. Luke has told us John has one job. His job was very similar to our job as we've been uh, brought into the family. We are in Christ, and that job is to be an ambassador, to point the way to who Christ is. In fact, the angel said to us back in chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, For he will, talking again about John the Baptist, be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Verse 17. And he will go before him in the spirit of power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And you can see just within those short verses, you have this word that keeps on coming up, which is turn. His idea is he's going to have people turn, which we've already hinted at and talked about. John's message is repentance, right? Is repentance. Now, we start out our time in in chapter 3 with a historical time stamp. This is what Luke is using here to try to show us. Remember that that he's, he's trying to tell Theophilus that I want you to know for certain, just like he wants us to know for certain, that these things actually happened. So what he does, he gives us a small time stamp here. This is when this happened. Right here in this time frame right here. And it says this. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and the brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and in Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. 
So this is a timestamp. These are actual people that actually ruled. This is a timestamp. This is what this is what Luke is giving us here. He's reminding us that this is no made-up story, that this is part of history, and, and I want to show you that this is part of history. And so it'd be the same way as if we kind of said this, if we wanted to talk about today. This would be kind of the, the way maybe we might do it. We might say the second year of Joe Biden's presidency and in the first month of the governorship of Westmore. Right? It's, it's a time stamp. Like if you said that and you look back 10 years from now, if you're in 10 years in the future and you look back today and this is your time stamp, you could probably get generally close to the idea of what time you wrote this if you gave those details. And this is exactly what Luke is trying to do. He's trying to show us this is real history, folks. This is real history. There's a couple insights that the timestamp does give us. Um, first, these men Luke mentions were known mainly for their wickedness. But th- that's who these men were. They're, they're very wicked men. We know that moral degeneration always leads to political chaos. So these people that were in, in charge, you know, when, when the morals are falling and, there's, and it's, it's just falling apart that way, then those in power are not going to lead well. They're going to lead for their own power, not for the good of, of all people. The second thing we must realize is there's been silence for 400 years. And God breaks in with a prophet crying in a wilderness. God hasn't spoke for 400 years. The people of Israel's anxiously waiting. They're doing all the things that the law told them to do. And they're waiting for the Messiah. They're waiting for God to speak. He breaks out with a man in the wilderness. An unruly man who wore some funky clothes and ate locusts. I mean, he was the first vegan before there were vegans, right? That's what he ate. He was, he was, he was just one of those healthy guys in the middle of the wilderness that looked kind of all raggedy. And he comes on the scene and he's declaring, declaring a message. And we see here that God speaks into the darkness. He speaks in the darkness light. And he calls out of the silence by sending a word to John. We see that there. The word of God came to John. The word of God came to John. John, the last prophet of the Old Testament, has received a word from God. Yes, his history is written in the pages of the New Testament, but the period in which he worked and preached was still the Old Testament period. The New Testament, as a period of history, did not begin until Jesus inaugurated the New Covenant and fulfilled the Old So John the Baptist was still living under the old structure. In fact, Jesus tells us that the law and the prophets reign until John, and the word until means up until including John. Jesus said that none of the prophets were greater than John. He was the greatest. In fact, Jesus said he was the greatest human that walked the planet. All the other prophets each wrote and spoke to foretell the coming of the Messiah in some way. Not only did they have the message for Israel or the people of God in their time, but they're always pointing forward to one day when God's going to make it all right through the Messiah. All these folks did so by pointing forward, except for John. He was the herald of the king, the time. The king has arrived. The king is here. Jesus has come. See, he was the forerunner, uniquely endowed by God to usher in the age of the Messiah. The prophets of the old period dreamed of such a privilege. 
But to John, it was a reality. It was a reality. John came to preach a word from God. That means even though we are 2,000 years removed from this message, because it is a word that came from God, that means it is valid for us also today. It is a good message for us to listen to today. So what was that message? What was the message that John was given to speak? We read this in verses 3 through 6. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming and baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall shall see the salvation of God. So we need to kind of look at John's message at, you know, like a macro level and a micro level. So we're kind of like at a 30,000 foot level. What is God doing in history? And why is he pulling this from Isaiah? And then what is God doing on a micro level? What is he talking about? And we know from the word here that the micro level is repentance. That's what John's message was. It was a baptism of repentance. So why is John using the words of Isaiah? To answer this, we need to go back to Isaiah, see what was going on and what was happening in the time of Isaiah. Why did he pen these words in Isaiah 40? That's where these words come from. Just about, they're they're pretty much straight up except for the very last part of it where he eliminates the glory and he just focuses on that everyone shall see the salvation of God, which is so important for us. So what was happening? Why did Isaiah write these words that John just spoke, this message that he had from God? Well, we can read in Isaiah 39, 6-7, what was happening to God's people at the time. It says this, Behold, the days are coming, when all that is in your house, and all that which your fathers have stored up to this day, shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons who will come from you, whom you will father will be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So God's people yet again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So now he's going to hand them over to Babylon. They're not quite there yet, but Isaiah is talking about this is what's going to happen. All the things that you have is going to be given to Babylon. In fact, some of your family is going to be raised up. They're going to be taken in by Babylonian people and they're going to be made eunuchs and they're going to be made to serve them. So this is kind of the context that Isaiah is speaking into in his time. Right? The people of God is being taken into human bondage. Why? Again, same historical reason. God's people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's why. However, Isaiah was called to speak into the real problem. God's people are about to experience captivity from Babylon, but what God sent Isaiah to speak about is their freedom from what truly binds them. And what truly binds them, and brothers and sisters, until we're in Christ, is what truly binds us, and that is sin. Sin is what binds us. See, God's people was not yet in Babylon, which means God, through his servant Isaiah, sent a message about the fulfillment of the promise which will come in the future. 
Because when you open up verse uh, chapter 40 of Isaiah, it says, comfort, comfort. So, so chapter 40 is, is a, a word of comfort to God's people. But it wasn't about those that are getting ready to go into Babylon because that's a very real reality for them. He's speaking about the future. And that's why John picks up this same message about freedom from your true enslavement. Freedom from sin and the one that we will see who can save us. The Lord's coming is that message. It's the baby in the manger. The boy who grew in wisdom and favor with God. The man who was fully man so that he can be proper sacrifice for our sins. See, that was the comfort that Isaiah was talking about. That's the one that will see the Lord's salvation. Seeing the Lord's salvation was Jesus in the manger, the boy, the man that went to the cross. This is why John and Isaiah say we must prepare the way for the Lord. We must prepare the way for the Lord. Don't miss this, beloved. God has been trying to get to his people since the garden. Do you see that? You see, all through the Old Testament, right after the garden, the God's trying to get to his old people, whether it be a tabernacle or a temple or, or different ways that he's, he's trying to get to his people. And what is the barrier? There's only one barrier between us and God, and that's our sin. That's what prevents him. That's what prevents him from coming. Sin keeps God from his people. And we read this in, in Isaiah's passage where he talks about the mountains and the valleys and the crooked roads and the, and the rough roads. And he's saying, no, God's going to make all those so that we can be connected to him. The valleys being filled, the mountains being leveled, the crooked paths made straight, rough places made smooth. These are pictures of what needs done in order to God to come to his people. And God has done his part. He has done his part. Verse 6 tells us, And all the people will see the salvation of God. All the people will see the salvation of God. And that salvation is Jesus. See, he has done that. He has straightened out the crooked path. He has filled in the valleys. He has taken out the, the high mountains that we can't get over. He has come as man to die on a cross for our sins. Jesus is the salvation of God. All people, both Jew and Gentile, has seen God's salvation, Jesus Christ. We have seen him. And John, the voice calling in the wilderness, has a message for us today. And that message is repent. That message is repent. This is how we prepare the way for the Lord. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. See, God has done his part. He has sent Jesus. He has, he's filled in the valleys. He's cut down the mountains. Now it's time for us to do our part. This is how we prepare to receive the king. And yes, I'm changing the word a little bit, but when you say Lord and king, it's the same idea. It's what the Lord means as you study it out. John the Baptist says, if you want to receive him into your life, you need to treat him as king. He's the king of your life. Repent is John's message. 
And John will help us to understand repentance more clearly as we unpack the rest of these verses. Look with me at the beginning of verse 8. What does he say? He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And then what does he do? He gives us an illustration. So we're, if we're reading this, we're looking at, okay, he's just said, bear fruits within repentance. And then now he's going to give us some illustrations. So this must mean what repentance is. So we look down at verses 10 through 14. And this is how this passage starts with a very familiar response to those in the Bible. They hear the gospel. They hear good word, right? And they say, oh, what must we do? You hear that in Acts Acts 2. You hear this a lot of times within the Bible. It's like they hear the word, okay, what must we do? And that word oftentimes is repent. And so John gives us, Luke gives us some illustrations here as John is preaching. And he answers them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also come to be baptized and said to him, sorry, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. So what is he saying? He's saying, those of you that have two tunics will share one. Those of you who have more food, share with the one who has little. Those of you who are cheating, the tax collectors, don't charge more than you need. Those of you who are taking money because of your power, the soldiers, where they manipulate and they would get anything they want, they lived high on the hog because they had the power, stop it and be content with what you have. What must we do? This is what John tells them. But remember what he said, right? Repent bears fruit in keeping with repentance. So he gives them this list of things to do. Be generous, be honest. So what is repentance, John? I mean, if you're, you're looking at this and you're reading this, what is repentance, John? It is a change of behavior. That's what you said, right? If we read closely, that's what he said. It's a change of behavior, right? I need to be more generous. I need to do that. That's, that's turning. That's, that's repenting. That's, that's what he's saying. But we got to read closer. What does he say? He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So the, a changed behavior is not repentance. It is the fruit of repentance. That's what he says, right? This is the fruit of repentance, generosity and all these different things. It's the fruit of repentance. Generosity where there was selfishness, honesty where there was dishonesty. What he is saying is these will always be results of repentance. It's the result of repentance. If you say, I have repented, but you do not have not changed your behavior, you have not repented. Because the fruit of true repentance is a changed behavior. That's what, that's what John is showing us here. So then that begs the question, okay, Joe, then what is repentance truly is? What is it truly? If it's not just changed behavior, because I know that we get stuck in this and, and, it's, and it's so much easier to, to teach you, you know, three steps to, to get this result and you go and do those three steps and, get, and hopefully get that result if, if God's in it, right? To, to change your behavior. But no, the, your changed behavior is the result of true repentance, 
This is James and Paul's argument, right? That you will have good works, not because you're working your way to heaven, but because you are saved and your heart has been changed. Well, repentance works the same way. This, this is what John, as he's preaching, is, is telling us. And Luke is recording here that there is a difference. That our changed behavior must be there if we have truly repented. But a changed behavior is not repentance. It's the fruit of repentance. He actually says this in verse 9. There's a difference. The fruit of repentance is changed behavior, but the root of repentance is a change of heart. It's a massively different thing. It is massively different. See, if you don't see generosity, honesty, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, self-control, humility actually growing in your life, then maybe you have not repented. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation and have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. And that is the fruit of the Spirit. All those things. Why are we not all those things? And every one of us are, are not fully there on any one of those things. Why not? Sin. It gets in the way. One day, whenever we're in the new heavens and the new earth, all that sin will be gone and we could live out this fully. Do you understand what's happening here? Do we see the difference? It's, it's like, right, it's, those things are not repentance. They're the fruit of repentance. Just like you're a new creature in Christ and you have all the patience you need if, if a desire of your heart wouldn't cause lack of patience. And that, that desire of your heart is something that you're worshiping more than God. Because the Holy Spirit dwells in you and has given you all the patience that you need. And it's a massive shift in the way you think about the gospel and how it works. And that's why the gospel isn't just for when you're first saved. It's for every single day of your life. It's for every single day of your life. We need to be reminded constantly what Christ has done for us so that, that we can stop worshiping these things of the heart. And I'm getting way ahead of my message. It's so that we can start worshiping him truly because he's the only thing that will satisfy us. See, the fruit of repentance is changed behavior, but the root of repentance is a change of heart. And he actually says this in his warning in verse 9. John says, even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Repentance is changing your root. Repenting, repentance is changing what you trust in. That's how you repent. You don't repent by saying, okay, I used to do this, now I do this. No, you got to change the heart issue. You got to change the heart desire. You got to change what you're truly trusting in, in that moment, to causes you to sin and not trust God anymore. That's the difference. John shows us this with the reaction to those who are coming to be baptized. He shows you what you trust in is what you're going to worship and what you trust in is going to control you. That's why James starts out by saying, you want to know why you have so many conflicts? It's not about the other person. It's not about your circumstances. What is it about? Is it about the desires of your heart? It's about the desires of your heart. 
So these folks are coming out and trying. He was, this is not like, when he did this message, we're going to talk about this a little bit next week, but this was not no nice and lovely message. I mean, he was, he was out there firing brimstone at these folks, right? And these are God's people coming out, Israel's people coming out to be baptized, which we'll get into next week why that was just an offense to them, that they had to be baptized. Are you kidding me? We are God's people. We don't need to be baptized. Well, yes, you do. Because you're trusting in other things. And look what he says here in verse 7. He said, Therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? They said, John, we come to be baptized. And he says, you brood of vipers. Why? Because John knows in the very beginning, it was a viper that got us into trouble. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I go back to Genesis 3 all the time because that's our problem. That is our problem. Genesis 3 is our problem. Every single one of us sitting here, every single human on the planet, Genesis 3 is our problem. That's our problem. Because John knows in the very beginning that it was a viper that got us in trouble. Also, immediately, God talked about the children of the serpent. The children of the serpent are people who believe what the serpent said. What did the serpent say? Did the serpent come into Adam and Eve and say, disobey? No, he didn't. Don't do what he says. Satan never said that. The serpent never said that. What does the serpent say? He says, you can't trust God. That's what he said. And that's what they believed. And that's the sin that we deal with every single day. You can't trust God. You can't trust him as Lord over your life. God does not have your best interest at heart. That is the lie that's implanted in us. That is the lie. You can't trust him. He says, deep in your heart is the lie of the viper, is the lie of the serpent. Whether you know it or not, your real problem is not what you're doing, but why you are doing it. It's your motivation. It's your heart issue. And we know from the story of the prodigal son that we can mistrust God in two opposite ways. We can mistrust God by being good, and we can mistrust God by being as bad as we possibly can be. And that's what the story of the prodigal son shows us. In both instances, even if it is, I read my Bible every day, and I go to church, and I do all this, and I'm trusting in that, but you're not truly trusting in Christ, that you can be as good as you good can be, but you're still far from God because you're not trusting in Him. That's what the story of the prodigal Son teaches us the two ends of that spectrum. John addresses both in our passage. We have already talked about the ones who mistrust God for being very bad. He talked about the soldiers, the tax collectors, and those greedy folks. He already talked about them. Now he addresses those that are being good, those that are relying on the fact that they're God's, you know, they're, they followed the law, that they're, they're part of religion. John now turns to those who mistrust by being very good. He says in verse 8, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. No, that's that's not what you need to boast in. I, I have a new message. Repent and trust in the Messiah. Trust in Christ. John's warning is that at an individual level, Abrahamic heritage guarantees nothing before God. 
You must trust in him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody goes to the Father except through me. That's what Jesus said. Nobody goes to the Father except through me. The best religious pedigree by itself is not an adequate source of protection before him. Or as Luke will tell us later in Luke 15 through 29, when he's talking about the elder brother, the one that, that don't get talked about a whole lot, but he's the one that he was doing good. Right? He, he, he was the good, the good brother. He's not the one that took the, the, the inheritance and went and blew it and sinned. He was the one that was doing good. And, and what does he say in verse 29? But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Do you see what he was trusting in? He was trusting in his goodness. Not trusting in God. The issue of becoming God's child is not a matter of inheritance, but of God's power and his work. He's the one that's filled in the valleys. He's the one that's taken down the mountains. He says that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. The stones picture dead, inanimate creations, which God brings miraculously to life. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love for which he loves us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. See, he's called dead stones to rise and to live for him. Those dead stones were our hearts. As he changes our stony hearts into hearts of flesh that can receive his word and see him for who he truly is. See, repentance is changing the root. Repentance is changing the heart. Repentance is changing what you trust in. Your behavior will reveal it if you truly repent. What we were talking about is something that Martin Luther really makes clear in his handling of the Ten Commandments. And I'm just trying to find different ways to bring this to you so that, that we can start and see this together as a faith family. That it, it is about your heart. This is everything that we do here at church, at Mountain City Church. We're designing everything to try to dig into that heart because we want you to be free in Christ. We want you to have joy like you've never experienced it. We want you to fully trust God because that's whenever we will have a blessed life is when we fully trust him. Martin Luther brings this whole idea out about trusting God as he talks about the Ten Commandments. He really makes clear when he talks about the first commandment. What is the first commandment? Have no other gods before me. What does this mean? What does it mean to have no other gods before him? It's the first commandment. This means you must not put your trust in anything more than God. 
There should be nothing that gives you more hope than God. There should be nothing that gives you more self-esteem than God. There should be nothing that gives you more satisfaction than God. There should be nothing that is your meaning in life more than God. Not people, not approval, not your spouse, not your future spouse, not your career, not public acclaim, not critical approval, nothing but God. Nothing but God. Then Luther says, why is, the first, why is this the first commandment? Why did God make this the first commandment? You shall have never, no other gods before me. Why was this first? Because it's the basis for every other commandment. It is the fundamental basis for every other commandment. You can't break two through ten without first breaking one. You can't do it. Again, if you break any of the commandments, two through ten, it is because you have already broken the first commandment. If you lie, it is because something is more important to you than God at the moment. You, you, you don't tell the truth. Like for me, usually whenever I tell a half-truth or just an out-and-out -out lie, it's so that people think better of me, right? I might exaggerate something or do something like that. So at that moment, God is not enough. I need that person's approval. So when I repent, I don't just say, okay, I'm going to stop lying. You're only going to keep that up for so long. And, and then what we end up with is frustrated, exhausted Christians because they can't keep it up. No, you can't. You can't. But if you find the root issue, now I know that I, I'm looking for this person's approval more than, than God, and I go back to the Bible, and, and when I read in the Bible, it says, this is who you are, Joe. You are a new creature in Christ. You are loved by me. You are accepted. Yes, you have many faults and failures, but I love you anyway. And I sent my son for you anyway. Stop and think about how Jesus redid the Ten Commandments, or some of the commandments. What did he say? Jesus said, if you lust, you commit adultery. Well, adultery is an act. Lust is a heart issue. What does he say? If you are angry... You commit murder. Murder is an act. Anger is a heart issue. You're angry because somebody is, is keeping something from you or you are fearful of something. That's why you're angry. Right? You, are, you want something really bad, someone's keeping it from you, or you fear something that is going to happen to you, so therefore we get angry. Well, in that moment, you're not trusting God. In that moment, we're not trusting God. Why does he do this? Because Jesus is aiming at the heart. He's always aiming at the heart. And he's usually, you know, killing the, the, the religious people for all their actions. When they miss it because it's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. If you are discouraged, if you are despondent, is because something is more important than God at that point. Something you have to have. What's going on? Your root is bad. The root is bad. So we change our roots. We change our roots. And we do that through the gospel. 
We do that from our brothers and sisters speaking into the life because we all have blind spots. We all have blind spots. We change the roots. We begin to treat him as king, as Lord of our life. Luther says, this is a great sentence, Jesus is the only king who when you actually get him will satisfy you. Plain and simple. Jesus is the only king who when you actually get him will satisfy you. And he is the only king, get this, if you miss him, who will forgive you? Who will forgive you? As Nate reminded us today that Luther was the one that said, life, all of life is one of repentance. Is, is consistently going and looking at our heart and seeing what we are trusting in more than God. And then going to the word of God and being reminded of what God has done for us, who we are in Christ. And as that process happens, this thing that had our, had our heart, had our desires, that, that, that had our, the grip on us will slowly and slowly and slowly be released. And we can fully trust God. And I know, and I, I, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but then God says, you know what, Joe, you got something else you need to work on. That's called progressive sanctification. But you know what? It's a joy. Because you know what that means? If, if you're walking and you're being changed and you're being convicted, if you're being convicted of sin, that means that God just spoke to you. The God of the universe, the God that created everything, just spoke to you and said, hey, Joe, you, you need to fix something here. You need to look at your heart. You need to see what, what you're worshiping and what you're loving and what you're trusting more than me. That is a glorious, glorious thing that the God of the universe cares that much for each of us. See, Jesus has come, and when the king comes, he does not adapt to your roads or Joe's roads or anybody else's roads. We adapt to his roads. Why? Because of who he is. He's the king. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It's who he is. He's not a tyrant. He is a loving king, but he is a just king. So he must judge because we have sinned. Now we're back at Roman, I mean Genesis 3 again. But he is a loving, a loving king. One that you can put your trust in fully. You can put your trust in fully. Here's the amazing thing about King Jesus. And this is where I'll close. Listen to these words about this King Jesus, the one that you can trust. Philippians 2, verse 6 says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, that is the person you are surrendering to, the person who surrendered everything for you. What a king.
What a king. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and a crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh, all flesh, Gentile and Jew, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. I pray today that you have seen the salvation of God. And if anyone turns from their sins, what they trust in over God, what they trust in over God, believes that Jesus is Lord, that he is the one who he says he is, and trust in him alone by faith, and is rescued from the wrath to come, forgiven all of their sins, closed with the righteousness of Jesus, and adopted as a child of the living God. And all of that, all of that is a gift of God's grace. I pray that you have experienced that. If not today, in the past, or I pray that he's leading you to experience that one day in the future. He is a king that we can trust. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, help us. We have been saved and we are on the path of sanctification. But our hearts, they trust in so many things that's not you. And Lord, just help us as we walk as we walk with you to keep in step with the Spirit as he's showing us our sins so that we may properly repent, not just changing our behavior, but seeing the heart issue and digging up at the root. Lord, may we truly repent and fully trust in you. May today be the day of salvation as we have seen your salvation and what Christ has done. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. To learn more about our church, visit our website at mountaincty.church. Thanks again, and may the Lord bless your week.